0: Psalm 110, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on earth on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Now you can hear me. Oh, it's good to be here with you this morning. What a privilege it is to be able to share God's word with you. Let me start by a little story. It's not really a story. It's a little something about me. I love hiking. Okay, I love to hike up mountains. I love to hike up canyons and even volcanoes. Now, my wife, on the other hand, could care less for hiking. In, in fact, one of the worst memories she probably has with me is when I made her hike up with me up a dormant volcano in the pouring rain during our honeymoon. It was not a good way to start things off. Now, one of my favorite hikes that I've ever hiked is called Angel's Landing and it's at Zion National Park. It is one of the most well-known hiking trails, and people come from all over the world to hike it. Now, it's a challenging trail. It takes a couple of hours to get to the top. And on the way, there are a series of 21 switchbacks. And when you are on the trail, they can be completely disorienting and feel like they are unending. But that's not the worst part. The most challenging part of the trail is the last 500 feet, when you're holding on to a chain bolted onto the side of the cliff and a thousand foot drop on each side of you. If you are afraid of heights, this is not the place to be. But if you get to the summit, you'll be standing on 6,000 feet of elevation with sweeping 360-degree views of some of the most breathtaking canyon scenery that you have ever seen. Now this morning, we are going to take a hike up the magnificent trail of Psalm 110. I might even be so bold to say that this Psalm is the angel's landing of the Old Testament. And the view from the top of Psalm 110 is more breathtaking than any canyon scenery you have ever seen. I say this because from Psalm 110, we get to see the beautiful panorama of God's plans and purposes in salvation that were promised in the Old Testament and fulfilled in the New Testament. From this vantage point in Psalm 110, you'll be able to look back at God's plans and purposes for redemption all the way back from creation to its fulfillment in Jesus Christ to all the way in the future into final consummation. So, come with me. This psalm is going to help us put our entire Bibles together. This this psalm is going to be challenging, but let me assure you that the journey is going to be worth it. There are going to be some switchbacks along the way, some confusing things that are said in this psalm. There might be some cliffs along the way, but I assure you, if you stick with me and if you get to the summit of this psalm, the fresh insights that you will gain will be absolutely worth it. Now, in the last few weeks, we have been considering the death of Christ and his burial in the book of Luke. And we'll look forward to the next few weeks when we get to consider the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus. But I think if we can climb to the summit of Psalm 110 today, together, we'll be able to better listen. Understand and appreciate the remaining sermons in the book of Luke. Now, I have stood up here and made some really bold and grand claims about Psalm 110. Am I just trying to get you hooked in at the beginning so you'll listen in, or do I have other reasons as well? Well, maybe a little bit of both. Let me give you two reasons why I think this particular Psalm is the angel's landing of the Old Testament. First, this psalm is quoted in the New Testament more than any other Old Testament passage. There are more than two dozen direct quotations or allusions from this psalm in the New Testament. So we know that the New Testament authors saw this psalm as very important in trying to understand God's plans and purposes. Second, this psalm contains significant truths that are at the core of our Christian faith. Just in these seven verses, we see glimpses of the Trinity, the kingship of Jesus, the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, the formation of the church, final judgment, and eternal life. All of that packed into seven verses. But the most important reason I want us to consider this passage today is a pastoral one. The picture that we gain from this passage about God's plans and purposes will be an anchor to your troubled hearts as we walk through the trials and temptations of this life. The realities expressed in this psalm can give us the needed confidence that all is well because Jesus is King. That He is King of kings and Lord of kings of lords dear friend are you fearful about the future are you weary in your struggle against sin are you wondering if the suffering you're walking through will ever cease come with me come with me to the summit of psalm 110 and see what god has for us together now the main point of this psalm I believe, is this. Through his rule and reign, Jesus, our priest, king, vanquishes our deepest fears and conquers our greatest enemies. Let me say that again. Through his rule and reign, Jesus, our priest, king, vanquishes our deepest fears and conquers our greatest enemies. I have three points this morning. After each point, I'm going to I'm going to summarize the point in the form of a promise and fulfillment. But the, each of the points are in the form of the promise that are derived specifically from the Psalm. It'll make more sense as you come along. First point is this the Messiah is promised in the Psalm to be an exalted king. The Messiah is promised to be an exalted king. Now, the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke tell us that David is the author of the Psalm, and he receives this Psalm from the Holy Spirit as a prophetic revelation. Now, verse 1 starts out saying, The Lord said to my Lord, and it's kind of confusing right away. Who is David talking about in this verse? If you notice in your Bibles, there might be a distinction between Lord in all caps and Lord not all caps. Now, the significance of this comes out in the Hebrew, which shows us that Yahweh is translated in our Bibles as LORD, all caps, which is the personal name of God in the Old Testament. And he is having a conversation with someone whose title is my Lord, or Adonai, which means master. This is the phrase that is not in all caps, potentially in most of your translations. Now, this is kind of odd. David in the Spirit is seeing God speaking to someone else who is superior to David because he calls him my Lord. Now think about this. If David himself is Lord over Israel, who could he be referring to as my Lord? Someone greater than David. Now David knew this because God had made a covenant with him. God had made a promise to David that one day one of his sons would reestablish God's rule and reign over creation forever. But then again, why would David refer to one of his sons as my Lord? How can a son be greater than his father? The scribes and Pharisees who were also waiting for the Messiah, but they also could not understand how David's son could be greater than David. This is exactly why they rejected Jesus as Messiah, because he claimed to be greater than David jesus actually takes them back to this very psalm to correct them and clarify this for them luke chapter 20 says this but he jesus said to them how can they say that christ is david's son only david says in the book of psalms the lord said to my lord sit at my right hand until i make your enemies a footstool enemies your footstool thus David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? The point that Jesus is trying to make here is that the Messiah was promised to be David's son. Absolutely true, according to the flesh. But in this psalm, it also foresees that the Messiah would be king with divine origin and authority. That is something the scribes and Pharisees did not see. Now, who is this king? And how is he promised in the story of the Old Testament? So let's briefly trace this theme of kingship and see how Jesus fulfills this role. And for that, we're going to have to start all the way at the beginning. In the beginning, God created Adam and Eve in his image. And he created them in his image to rule and reign over creation. In a sense, God had given them a kingly commission to rule on behalf of God as his representatives on this earth. But they were deceived by Satan. They sinned against God, abandoning their kingly calling to rule, reign, and have dominion over the earth. Because of this, they were exiled from fellowship with God that they experienced in Eden. And since then, all of creation has been under a curse. But even then, God had promised that one of their descendants would one day come and crush and destroy the serpent and restore the blessings of Eden to humanity. Now, the story continues in various ways, but I just want to trace the theme of kingship. So, the story continues in Genesis 49, when Jacob is blessing his sons. And he says to one of his sons, Judah, he says that from the tribe of Judah shall come Shall come someone who will reign over God's people. That's interesting. We then come to the book of Ruth, and we see that David is connected to this royal line of Judah. Now, through Israel's story, God makes a promise to David, saying that one of his sons God would use to reestablish his rule and reign over the earth forever. David has a son, Solomon. He shows great promise initially, following God in his ways, but eventually he sins, abandoning his calling. Many other kings came in the royal line of Judah, but none were able to reestablish God's kingdom. All of them were plagued by their own sin. As the kings abandoned God's calling, God brought judgment on Israel, and eventually they went into exile however god's promise still remained god's promise to one of david's sons was yet to be fulfilled but who is this offspring of david after hundreds of years of silence an angel comes to a virgin mary and says this and we if you remember this from luke chapter 1 and behold you will conceive in your womb and bear a son You shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. All the hopes of the nation of Israel, all the hope of all the nations since Genesis chapter 3, comes to fulfillment in Jesus, the son of David. Now, in the second part of this verse, we see that Yahweh says to the Messiah King, sit at my right hand. Now, what does this phrase mean? This phrase is used throughout the Old Testament to describe a position of power and authority. What Yahweh is saying to the Messiah king is that the Messiah will be exalted to a position of power and authority at the right hand of God in heaven. And this is exactly what happens at Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Here is how Peter makes this case using this exact psalm in his sermon at Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, he says, "'Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God,' And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourself are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now because of this connection, this is what Peter concludes. Let all the house of Israel, therefore, know for certain that God has made him both the Lord and Christ, whom you have crucified. Everything that was being prophesied in the psalm coming to fulfillment on the day of Pentecost. Now, from this place of power and authority, Jesus begins his rule and reign after his resurrection. Now, let's look at verse 2 to understand the nature of his reign. It says, The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, the, now Yahweh gives the Messiah king a mighty scepter, which is a symbol of absolute rule and authority. And this power is symbolized by a scepter. It is a power that is absolute, and it is a power that is given to him to establish his kingdom and crush his enemies. Now, it's interesting to note in this verse that it says that the Messiah will rule in the midst of his enemies. In the midst of his enemies. This simply means that Jesus began his rule and reign in power at his resurrection, and is ongoing currently while his enemies still remain on earth. Friends, this is the current era that you and I live in, and we can see the evidence of this all around us, among those that oppose God. But one day, our king will return, and he will crush his enemies. Now, verse 3 goes on to describe something about the nature of God's people in his kingdom. Verse 3 says this, Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. The idea here is that God's people will offer themselves freely to be subject under God's rule and reign on the day of his power. Now, how does God make his subjects willing, and what is the day of his power? God makes his subjects willing through the power of the Holy Spirit, and the day of his power that I believe he's referring to here is when the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church at Pentecost. This is what, this is what we read a little bit earlier, earlier when Peter, Peter says this, Therefore, God has exalted Jesus to the right hand of God and received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now think about this. The first act of the risen and ascended king is to establish his rule and reign by pouring out his Holy Spirit on the church. What is the significance of that? God is creating a new people. A new people that are willing, a willing people with new tastes and desires, willing to be subject to the authority and lordship of Jesus, a new people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who have trusted in the Messiah. This picture kind of reminds me of a picture in one of my favorite movies, and don't judge me because I said this but it reminds me of The Lion King. After Simba defeats Scar, there is this epic scene when he climbs up to the top of Pride Rock, and you have this epic music going. And when he gets to the top, his place of exaltation, you see all the animals around bow in willing submission, rejoicing that we have a good king that is on the throne. This is the picture of the people of God, the church that is empowered, whose hearts have been changed by the Holy Spirit, willingly bowing to the exalted and risen King. Now, since then, God's rule and reign has been been expanding ever since through spirit-filled people in the church who proclaim the good news of the risen and ascended King. Do you see how God is extending his rule and reign and how we are involved as his church in the expansion of his kingdom? We've seen throughout the book of Luke how the scribes and Pharisees were looking for a different type of king, one that was only political in nature. Friends, Jesus is more than that. He is most concerned about our hearts being willingly subject to him. And he has graciously done that for us through his spirit. Now let's think about what that means for us. What does that mean for us today that Jesus is on the throne, even now, ruling and reigning? Well, for one, I know, friends, this is a very troubling time for many. Days that bring much anxiety and fear. But the reality and truth is that Jesus has been expanding his kingdom, reclaiming lost territory from the, power of the, from the powers of darkness through the gospel of his Son. No matter what is going on in our culture, is your hope in this type of kingdom? Is your hope in this type of king? Or are you looking for another type of king? We live in a culture where fear is the new norm. There are many in our culture who want us to be fearful of death, getting us to do anything we can to avoid it. There are others in our culture who want us to be fearful about the future of this nation. Brothers and sisters, let me encourage you. We of all people should not be fearful of death, and we of all people should not be fearful of the future. Nations will rise and fall. They have since the dawn of time. God's plans and purposes are not dependent on any one nation. God's rule and reign does not depend on who is in the White House. His reign does not depend on just and unjust laws that are passed. God's current rule and reign is powerful and it's expanding every day, regardless of what our culture wants us to believe. Let this vanquish your fear and bring comfort to your weary souls today. So the promise in this psalm is that one day the Messiah will be an exalted king. Here's how it's fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, our exalted king, is establishing his kingdom over all the nations of the earth through spirit-empowered people in the church. That's the first point. Now we come to the first switchback in our trail. Are you tired yet? We come to the first switchback. Maybe I should take a little swig of water. We come to the fourth verse, and we hear something kind of confusing. We learn of what Yahweh ordains for his future exalted king. God ordains that his future exalted king will also be a priest. Point number two, the Messiah will be a better high priest. Verse 4 says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. What in the world? Are you confused yet? After the order of Melch, what? Well, Let's try and make sense of this. We first encounter Melchizedek in Genesis chapter 14. There's only a few verses dedicated to this man, and you would really think that he's a minor character in the story. But from the vantage point of this psalm, we see that he serves as a significant, he plays a very significant role. Because Melchizedek ser- serves as a prophetic prototype of the Messiah who was to come. So let's pick up on his story in Genesis chapter 14 a little bit and see what he's talking about. First briefly, Genesis tells us that Melchizedek means, his name literally means king of righteousness. And as king, he ruled over the ancient city of Salem, generally believed to be Jerusalem. Not only was he the king, but it also says that he was a priest to the Most High God. So let's pick up the story in Genesis 14 after Abraham comes back from a battle with some tribal kings. After his return, talking about Abraham, returned from the defeat of Ketor Leomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went to meet him at the valley of Sheva, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was a priest of the God Most High. And he blessed Abraham. And he said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. That is it. That is the only place Melchizedek comes up in the story in Genesis. Genesis. So what happens here? Abraham, after he defeats some tribal kings who had taken his nephew Lot captive, mysteriously sees this guy who shows up, who is another king, and he pronounces a blessing on Abraham. For whatever reason, Abraham recognizes him as a spiritual authority, and he pays tithes to him. That's all we hear about Melchizedek. That's it. Until we get to Psalm 110. And here we find it kind of confusing because under the law that God gave to Moses, there could only be one order of priests, and it was the order of Aaron from the tribe of Levi. Later in Israel's history, when kings came, the monarchy and the priesthood were always kept separate. Kings were never priests, and priests were never kings. No one could be both king and priest. In fact, we see examples of God's disfavor on kings that tried to take on priestly duties, of King Saul when he tries to offer sacrifices himself, or King Uzziah who was struck with leprosy when he tried to usurp priestly powers. But here in Psalm 110, David is speaking of, a, of the Messiah who is both priest and and a king so we know there is nothing inherently wrong with a priest king and david to defend this takes us back to melchizedek who describes who is described as both king of salem and priest of the most high god man this is setting things up perfectly because melchizedek is going to be a perfect prophetic prototype of jesus the messiah who is both priest and king. Now, just from this verse 4, there are significant amount of insights that the author of Hebrews unpacks for us. We're not going to have time to get into all of it, but let me just point out three specific insights from this verse that the author of Hebrews helps us understand how this verse points to the person and work of Jesus. First, The Messiah will become a priest based on an oath from God. The verse says this, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Hebrews chapter 7 unpacks this in this way. It says, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one, Jesus, was made a priest with an oath by the one, by Yahweh who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. Now, remember the Levitical priests. The only way you could be a priest under the Levitical order is if you were a Levite. It was by physical descent. But Jesus, the Messiah here, it says, was made priest by an oath from God himself. Now, what's the significance of that? None of the Levitical priests were made priests by an oath from God. And the reason God makes an oath is that he is obligating himself to fulfill his word through the Messiah. The very character of God is at stake. The very promises of the Messiah are at stake if they do not come to pass. This should bring us hope and confidence because God's promises in Christ are backed up by his word, his oath. He has bound himself by this oath that cannot be broken. Second, the Messiah will be of a better order, a better priesthood. The old Levitical order had many imperfections and weaknesses in it and they were built into it from the start. It was never supposed to be the final solution. Hebrews chapter 7 tells us this way, If perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? Aaron. This text basically tells us that perfection was never attainable. It was never possible through the Levitical priesthood. And it was so by design. The priests themselves were sinful, and the blood of bulls and goats that were sacrificed could never actually pay the penalty of sin. If that system of sacrifices were to continue we would have no hope. But God had planned a solution. He had planned a permanent solution through which his people could be made perfect. Through the death of the Messiah, through the death of Jesus on the cross, our sins are actually paid for. Through his life and obedience to the law, his perfect righteousness is credited to us. Perfection is possible through this new order. Finally, this verse tells us that the Messiah will be a better high priest because he will fulfill this role forever. Why does he say this? He says this because the Levitical priests were not forever, because they eventually died. Hebrews 7 says this, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he, Jesus, holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Man. Hebrews goes on to say this, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek who has become priest not on the basis of legal requirements concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. This high priest is going to live forever. He is resurrected from the dead. He has conquered death, no more to be encumbered by the power of death. Jesus, this new high priest, the better high priest, he possesses the power of indestructible life. And with this indestructible life, he has entered into the presence of God to intercede on behalf of his people forever, forever. All right, break, break. I know that's a lot. Let's think about what this means for us. Brothers and sisters, are you weary this morning in your struggle against sin? tired of fighting the same sins over and over again you struggle to believe that God is for you you ever wonder if your fight against sin is hopeless do you ever wonder if your sins have actually been totally forgiven paid for covered never to be remembered anymore this morning I want you to look at our great high priest Based on an oath from God which cannot be revoked, through Jesus and his work, all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been completely covered. The all sufficient sacrifice of Jesus for us perfect, complete, making us righteous before God. Now, because of that, we can have confidence when we are in need, when we are struggling in our sin that Jesus is before the throne of God, interceding on our behalf forever, ensuring that all of our sins have been paid for and blotted out. So how is this promise fulfilled in Jesus? The promise in the psalm was that the Messiah will be a better high priest. But Jesus is the better high priest who perfects us through his sacrifice and his intercession on our behalf before the throne of God forever. Isn't that amazing? All right, we come to our final switchback in our journey to the summit of Psalm 110. In verses 5 and 6, we see that the Messiah will not only be an exalted king, he'll not only be a better high priest, but he is also a conquering king. Let's read verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. Remember verse 1 where Yahweh promised the Messiah king to sit at his right hand until he makes his enemies a footstool, implying that they were not yet made a footstool. And then he goes on to say to the Messiah to rule in the midst of your enemies, which has been ongoing since his resurrection from the dead. But there is a day coming when the Messiah will return. And he's going to return like a conquering king to crush all who stand in enmity against his rule and reign. Just look at these verses. Consider the graphic imagery used here. He will shatter kings, execute judgment. The entire battlefield is going to be covered in corpses. This is going to be a decisive victory for the Messiah king who's going to come and deal a crushing blow to his enemies. The Bible tells us that there is a day that is coming when our conquering King Jesus will return at the end of the age and there will be a great final battle between the people of God and those who oppose him. This is how this is fulfilled in the person of Christ. The book of Revelation shows us how how this happens and it does so in such graphic manner. Then I saw heaven opened and behold A white horse. The one sitting is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a roped robe dipped in blood and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword from which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress with the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Man, if that doesn't put the fear of God in your souls, I don't know what will. Jesus came in weakness, in human flesh, born in a manger, crucified by sinners. But one day he will return as a conquering king, and he will return with wrath and judgment for all who oppose him. Friends, on that day, there will be no place to hide. Your allegiance is either to his kingship or you are his enemy that will be crushed under the fury of his wrath. This psalm concludes by saying that the Messiah will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This imagery is one of a conquering king who is refreshing himself after a decisive victory over his enemies. He is satisfied with his work. He has gained an inheritance of people, a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. And from that day forward, there will be a dawning of a new era of peace, righteousness and justice. All of God's enemies will have been destroyed. Sin, the powers of darkness, Satan, and death itself. No more tears, no more suffering for God's people. God himself will restore the beauty of the fellowship we were created to enjoy with him in the Garden of Eden. Friends, are you ready for this day? Do you look forward to it? If you have put your hope in Jesus, our priest king, you will be safe on that day. But if you have not, only judgment awaits you. Let me ask you another question. Is this a portrait of Jesus that you consider very often? Do you love this version of Jesus as the conquering king? Or is he just weak and frail and just kind of a nice guy? My friends, Jesus is gentle and lowly at heart, absolutely. But he's also a conquering king who will one day return, and his clothes are going to be dripped with blood, and from his mouth will come a sharp sword to strike down anyone who opposes him. And it will be good to be on his side on that day. to summarize, how is this promise fulfilled in Jesus? The promise was that the Messiah would be a conquering king. Here's how it's fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus, our conquering king, will return to establish his perfect kingdom through judgment of the wicked and eternal salvation of his people from among all the nations of the earth. Now, we have gone through a few difficult switchbacks in this psalm, and we are now finally at the summit of Psalm 110. I hope you've been able to see see the whole panorama of God's plan to redeem a people for himself from Genesis all the way to Revelation. We can now see clearly from this vantage point how the promise of the Messiah, the seed promised in Genesis, in Genesis, would come to save his people from their sins, and who will one day return to bring judgment on all who oppose him, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. I hope that's you. Does your heart cry out for this good and righteous king? Does your heart cry out for his rule and reign and power and authority? On in this broken world. Guys, I can't wait. There's nothing I want more than this. Now, I have a question for you guys, and maybe this can be a discussion point for you as you leave here, or something to talk about on your way home or with your families. From this summit, we saw three stark portraits of the Messiah. We saw the Messiah is an exalted king, the perfect high priest, and the conquering king. I want to leave you with this final question. Which of these portraits of Jesus do you struggle to believe and cherish today? Is it Jesus, the exalted king who is ruling and reigning now? Is it Jesus, the perfect high priest who has perfected you for all time? Or is it Jesus, the conquering king who will return to crush his enemies? You want to know Jesus? We've seen Jesus much more clearly this morning through this psalm.